Hello and welcome to another episode of Storytime with Boone, episode 20, in fact. On this episode, I've talked to a man whose contribution to British music has been extremely significant, to say the least, as the bass player in one of the UK's most important bands of all time. I'm talking about the specials. The music of the specials, it brought us from the dying embers of the, the punk rock movement into a new age, didn't it, where Britain's disaffected youth, still not too happy with the general state of things, found a new voice and a new sound, something a bit more upbeat and positive than the punk sound had brought us. The specials and the, the contemporaries and the two-tone movement introduced millions of British people, literally millions, to the sound of ska music, albeit a style of music that was uh, originated in Jamaica in the 1950s. It had been largely forgotten ska. It had been put on a shelf and in a little box labelled File Underworld Music, dash quirky, dash occasionally rude. People had sort of forgotten about it. And to us in the late 70s, it was an absolute breath of fresh air when this ska thing arrived, this new ska. We all embraced the new sound. It made us happy, didn't it? And still had the political message. The message was still in there, you know, the anger, the frustration, the disillusionment. Right at the very core of that sound stood this rock-steady young man from the Midlands with a bass guitar stung round his neck. His name was Stephen Graham Panther. And at some point, like a thousand other punk rockers or art students or rock and rollers, Stephen acquired an alternative name. Arise, Sir Horace Gentleman. He was Sir Horace Gentleman. And in time, he became Horace Panther. And his work as a bass player is monumental. Nothing, to me, defines the scar sound, the two-tone sound, more than the actual bass lines. And Horace is he's also a fantastic artist, as you're about to hear when I'm talking about his art as well. He's been making art longer than he's been making records, right? And he's also one of the most humble pop stars you'll ever get to meet. He's a lovely chap. And he recently came to Manchester to launch an exhibition with two fellow artists, Chris Barton and Morgan Howell. And I took the opportunity to catch up with Horace and uh, I recorded our conversation for this episode of Storytime with Boom. The exhibition... It's called Cassettes versus Vinyl. It's about to go out to California, actually. And the art in the exhibition is based exclusively around the imagery of cassettes and vinyl, um, that, that old lost world that's coming back into fashion again. It's a wonderful thing to see. If you get a chance to check out the exhibition, do catch it. The venue that I'd sport Horace at was the Art Zoo Gallery in Manchester, a lovely little establishment if you're passing. And uh, check out Horace's work online. He's got a website, horacepanterart.com, and you can follow him on Twitter as well, at... Horace Panther Art. At the end of this episode of the podcast, I'll be introducing you to a new Manchester act called The G.O.D. right at the end. And uh, the track I'm going to play is called Drive Away the Rain. And my choice of unsigned music for this episode will become apparent when you're talking to Horace in a few minutes' time. As always, I've put together a Spotify playlist with complete versions of the songs that you're going to be hearing on this episode. And there's other tunes as well by some of the artists that we talk about. Thanks as always to you for subscribing to my podcast. Don't forget to check out the other one as well if you get a chance. It's devoted entirely to new music. It's called Set to Go. That's Set to Go. And it's also available as a free download on iTunes. Thanks again to my friends at Distorted Productions as well for helping me to get this stuff out to you. Okay, let's do it. Story time with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. Okay, so uh, welcome to the Artsu Gallery in Manchester. It's a live edition of my Storytime with Boone podcast, and uh, we're going to be talking to Oris Panther, who's in town, not as a musician this time, but as an artist. He's part of a, a three-pronged attack by some uh, modern artist, uh, Chris Barton, who loves making big, massive cassette tapes. Morgan Owl, 
who loves making big massive vinyl records and putting them in big massive canvas record sleeves and uh, Oris Panther who makes big massive paintings of shitloads of cassette tapes. Oris, welcome to Manchester. Thank you very much. <laughs> first things first, the phrase birds of a feather stick together, you three artists. Is it just coincidence? Were you all treading this path and then you sort of bumped into each other at some point? How did you get together? What happened? Well, I, I was aware that I started painting large pictures of cassettes and then it's like um, I was aware that Morgan Howell does these large paintings of and it's well this is um this is interesting he, he's kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing and then Chris came along with these giant sized cassette sculptures and it's like okay this is going to work together so we all got got together and we were all going in the same direction none of us tread on anyone's toes you know I don't do vinyl you know Morgan doesn't do cassettes you know so it's it, it, so it works it's a great partnership, isn't it? And I believe you're taking it off to the States as well soon, aren't you? Yes, we've got a, an exhibition in October in, in, Los, in Los Angeles, um, which is very exciting, very expensive, yeah. Let's start at the beginning of um, Oris's uh, story. Give us a, a brief snapshot of the kind of childhood and uh, upbringing you had. Um, I was born in Kettering. Well, I was brought up in Kettering, Northamptonshire, which was, was voted the most boring town in England about 10 or so years ago. Um, so very little went on. My father bought a, um, a transistor radio in 1962. I can remember it was orange with like sort of lilac sort of bits on it. But with that, I could listen to Radio London and Radio Caroline. And all of a sudden, the world of pop music was accessible to me at the incredibly impressionable age of 12, 13, and, and it was downhill all the way from, from then on. So I, I was just thrilled with, with, pop, with pop music. I used to go and stand outside Alf Bailey's record store in Gold Street and stare at, at, at psychedelic album covers and, and, and wish that I was in those groups. And, and, and then eventually, um, saving up my pocket money, was able to buy records. And, that, and, you know, and, I, and I was just a total music nut from about 13 onwards. And what was the first music that inspired you? What was the first stuff that had an impact on you? Um, I bought The Birds, Spencer Davis Group, Small Faces, All or Nothing, and the, the first Fleetwood Mac album. I, I, I had that. I, I really like blues. But it was, it was more sort of beat music, you know, like the dance music of the, of, of, of the mods. But it was like... Uh, it was this this lifestyle that I just thought was fascinating, you know, playing guitars and and, and living in transit vans and and performing. It was was just this mythical world that I, I really wanted to be part of. I know that feeling very well. So, were you a musical kid, or did you have to work hard to learn the uh, the instruments? Um, I was in a church choir, so I knew a bit about sharps and flats and every green bus drives fast and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until I went to the Lanchester Polytechnic in Coventry that the, the bass guitar that I had you know, became of any use. I was very lucky to live in a, a house with um, some people who, um, who, who were musicians as well, one of whom, a guy called Bob Carter, who was in Lynx. Do you remember Lynx? They were on Chrysalis about the same time as the specials. He, he um, produced um, Junior Giscombe's Mama Used to Say. He was the guy who sort of um, put me on the right track and told me where to put my fingers in the right place, and you know, and um, and I, I worked with with a drummer who could actually play, which was unlike the bands that I was in in Kettering, Northamptonshire. So I actually learnt how to to work as as part of a team in 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 a, in a rhythm section. So it would all, and then another student at Lanchester Polytechnic was Jerry Dammers, and then it was like um, 
he realised that I could play and then he invited me to, to make some music with him and that became the specials. So what, what year was that? Was that 77, 78? Um, I first started college in seven, 1972. Jerry um, joined in 1973 and um, the band that would become the specials started working together, I suppose, late 1976. And it happened pretty quick, didn't it? Because it was it 79 by... 1979, you had the first top ten record, your first single. January 1979, we recorded Gangsters, and um, July 1979, we signed with um, we signed Two Tone Records to to Chrysalis. Yeah, that's an incredible fast ascent, that, isn't it? Yeah, but we were in the right place at the right time. You know, um, punk was pretty much dying on its ass. The Sex Pistols had split up. The Clash spent most of their time in America. You know, and um, th there was space for something new to come along. So we, we got the sort of a, a mod clothes aesthetic and we, we joined up the energy of punk rock to ska and reggae and there you go. Politics and the social commentary that you became famous for, it was quite, like you said, some of the bands that had pioneered that had gone at this point, so you just walked right into their shoes, didn't you, Ian? Yeah. But also, I like Coventry, people go on about, oh, it was, it was a great socio-political statement, but in, in Coventry, Coventry, I think, was a multiracial city before multiculturalism was invented, you know, because my friend Neil Davis was in The Selector, he says, you know, when he was growing up, he lived in the same streets as people from, you know, Greece, Ireland, Poland, Barbados, whatever, you know, m my wife's best friends at school were, you know, were, were Greek, you know, Asian, Italian, whatever, so everybody kind of mucked in. And, and it was the same musically. You got the gig if you were a, a good guitarist, whether, regardless of whether you were black or whether you were white. So people like Neil Davis and Jerry Dammers would play in soul bands with people like Charlie H. Bembridge, who was the drummer in The Selector, and um, Neil and uh, Linval Golding, and people like that. So there was that sort of sort of cross-fertilisation of, of, of musicians anyway. Talking of hometowns, I think we should just have a mention of the Manchester rain that you can hear in the background, because you've got to remember, people who want to listen to this podcast around the world, and we are famous in Manchester for having rain, and it's actually pissing it down. <laughs> Just on the other side of this glass here, and you can hear it. Shh, listen. Beautiful, isn't it? Poetry, absolute poetry. So give us some of the highlights of your time in the specials, chapter one, I know you're back on it now and loving it, but chapter one of the specials, what were the best bits? Um, we spent three weeks in the summer of 1978 um, as support band for The Clash. And I tell the story that we, we started the tour as civilians, but ended it as a proper group. You know what I mean? It was like, it was, it was like rock and roll boot camp. It was, uh, it was um, seven of us in the, in the band, plus roadie and driver, in one of these big transit vans and, you know, sleeping in the van and all this kind of stuff. But it was learning, um, you know, um, I think the, the clash set the benchmark for a specials performance. Um, you know, and it was the best education I think you know we 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 could have had. They were they were tremendous, and we we just finished that tour really tight and a lot more convinced that that we were on the right track, definitely. 
That's really like kindred spirits in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah they were, I suppose, our, our mentors. Whether I don't suppose they they knew it, but but definitely definitely they were. And then January '79, recording our own single because none previously no none of the record companies would would pay us in, in any any heed. And then realizing that um, to adapt Scar as a sort of a, a um, the sort of the focal point for our music. Before that, we'd been like a punk band and a reggae band. So we play a punk song. Then we play a reggae song, then we play a punk song, and it was kind of all okay. But it was like having two bands on stage at the same time didn't really work. But Scar made the the the, the slower reggae songs a bit faster and more danceable, and Scar made the punk songs a bit slower but a lot more danceable. So it was the kind of the unifying factor, and the fact that you could buy a second-hand tonic suit uh, up Gosford Street for like next to nothing. That that. That, that suit that I'm wearing on the um, the cover of the first specials album cost me seven quid, you know. But and and back then, you know, you, you could do that. So I think that that that, that was really interesting. And then. I think the, the first bit of press we got as well, we got a, a, a review in, in Sounds, I think it was, that was great. You know, I, I could sort of I would walk around town reading it, sort of showing everybody that they had it. And also when, when, we recall, when we released Gangsters, it was like hanging out, looking in, as inconspicuous as I could at the local Virgin Records and just sort of like just <laughs> noticing, you know, the, the, the queue of people who were, were lining up to buy the single, which was fantastic. And eventually, in 1981, you had a massive hit record and you split up. Had you, had you already split up when Ghost Town hit the charts or was it soon after? We were not exactly on one another's Christmas card lists um, by then. I mean, get, getting everybody to be in the same room at the same time and play was a triumph of, of Jerry Danner's will, to be honest, and I have nothing but enormous respect for, for him for him doing that. And then we went to, um, you know, dreadful tour in America, three weeks in America in 1981, came back and that, and that was that, yeah. This tour is coming All the clubs are being closed down This place You know, without you don't have to go into too much detail. What basically was the the issue, the problems? What stopped that amazing band from being able to work together? You know, a band that was just uh, they broke some, they broke down some amazing boundaries. They kicked a lot of doors in, and suddenly they've got this turmoil. What was it all about? We were seven very different people to start off with. I mean, when when most bands they're mates, a, and it's like, okay, we, we really enjoy one another's company. What can we do so we can still be mates together? I know we'll learn musical instruments so we can be mates and, and, and play music, and it's a great laugh. The other sort of band is like, I've got this great idea. I've got these great songs. What I need is a drummer, a bass player, a guitar player, a singer. So the interpersonal skill relationships, you know, weren't really there. And um, Jerry, Brad and I were um, ex-art school. So, you know, middle-class kids with degrees and that sort of stuff. Um, Roddy's dad worked up the jag, you know. Um, um, Terry, Terry's dad, I don't know, I, I can't remember what Terry's dad, but they, they were like the working-class kids. Linval and Neville came over on the boat from Jamaica, 
you know, in, in the early 50s. And um, so culturally, it was, it was all really kind of different. But then you throw all those different people together. And I made friends with some of them. I made friends with all of them. Some of them I made more friends with than, than others. And that all changed when we started getting money. You know, um, the working class thing, if, if you've got it, flaunt it. You know, and the, the, um, the middle class thing of, well, that's a bit embarrassing, and um, being, um, you know, rich, you know, and, and perhaps um, as I'm a committed socialist, I ought not to go on about this too much and blah, blah, blah. So that caused an awful lot, lot of frictions. Plus, some people took, everybody took different drugs. <laughs> you know, um, some people smoke marijuana and um, some people took um, amphetamines because that was part of the, of the mod sort of thing. And some of us didn't do anything at all. And there's, you know, I don't know, being the, the one sober person amongst a room full of drunks ain't great, you know, whatever. And some people were going really fast and some people were really laid back. And some, you know what I mean? So it was, plus we had this enormous touring schedule. Which, you know, because we were, you know, it, it happened, as you say, it happened really, really fast. So we, we toured all over the world in 1979 and 1980 and had to make a record as well. So we were basically, we were exhausted. I think if we'd have taken some time off, you know, it, it, it would have, the band would have, would have continued a little bit longer. So what happened then was uh, three of the band left and formed Funboy 3. Specials carried on in various incarnations for a few years, but then you went back to the real world, and this is something that I found brilliant about you. You ended up teaching art to uh, kids with autism for, yeah. for 10 years. Yeah. You're an art teacher. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Tell us about that period, because I'm guessing that was what, probably one of the best jobs you've ever had, I'm guessing. It was the second best job I ever had. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I qualified as a, as a teacher in 93, and sort of, and then, and didn't do a great deal with it, but ended up working um, in this special needs school teaching. I, I went in as a with a, a, a pupil who um, with, with special needs uh, who wanted like an education assistant. So um, the art teacher, who was really the PE teacher, who did art because nobody else um, would do it. It's only a small school. When I mentioned that I had a degree, it would come here, young man. And and then before I knew it, I, I you know I, I was the art teacher. But it, it was great. It was really good because kids who perhaps couldn't achieve so much because they couldn't read or write too good you you can you can achieve just as much through through, through drawing or, um, and, and painting and it made me think an awful lot about my art about how i you know the stuff that i wanted to paint and also seeing it through the, the kids eyes what what they what, what they really enjoyed and what, what what excited them about about the visual arts and it was it was interesting and I always say that, that perhaps working with musicians for, for 15 years was very good training for working with people with special needs. <laughs> yeah. um, 1998, was it 1998 to 2008, you, you taught art, and then suddenly the talk of this reunion, which we were all very excited about. I mean, it felt like anybody in the UK that appreciated decent music was buzzing about the announcement that the specials were coming back. Probably along the lines of like the Roses coming back and bands like that, you know, serious bands getting back in onto the circuit. How did you feel when you got the call that it was going to happen? Or did you make it happen? It was Limval who sort of called and said, okay, let's all get together. There is a possibility that, you know, and I was like, well, okay, I've got this really good job for the first, you know, I've, I've got the job that my parents always wanted me to get, you know, I'm paid once a month, you know, there's a pension scheme going on. And, and, I, and there was a possibility of a tour. So it's like, well, okay, well, perhaps I'll take a year off and then go back, you know, and I'll be able to retire a school teacher because I thought that's what I was going to do. But then 
that's all sold out and then other dates were added and they sold out and it's like I think we've got something here and then um, we, we did our the, the, the first tour in April May in 2009 and it's like well okay um, well we've had some calls from some people in Japan and we've never been to Australia and um, and then there's a possibility of another tour and, and all of a sudden you know it had legs as they say and and um, and here it is in What's the vibe like in the camp? I mean, obviously, we've had a couple of tragic losses recently, which we'll talk about in a, bit, a little bit. But generally, the camp as it is now, is it, is it the best the specials has ever felt, would you say? Yeah, I think everyone's facing in the right direction. Um, it, it was good. Um, we started with six of us. And then Neville got ill, and so he, he, um, it was difficult for him to, to do all the travelling, so he left. And then Rod, Roddy quit, which was kind of, oh, OK, fair enough, he, he's, he does what, what he... And he didn't really enjoy being the guitar player in the specials. He, he'd always wanted to have his own band, which, which I think was, was true back in the day as well. So, so, he's, he's, so he's gone. But we, have, we replaced him with Steve Craddock from Ocean Colour Scene and Paul Weller's band. And he's great. And he's such a nice bloke and a fantastic guitar player. And, um, and then Brad died, which was such a tragedy. Absolutely. You know, here we, we had the four people who were all at one mind. We could all talk to one another. We were all facing the same direction. And then Brad died a couple of days after Christmas last year, which is an absolute tragedy. Um, it was like, well, what should we do? But, you know, if it was me, I would think, well, the guy should continue. And we'd had this sort of tour booked, so, so we're, we're going. And um, we have Gary Powell from the Libertines playing drums, and we've just finished two weeks' rehearsal in London, and it, it sounds fantastic. It, sounds really it still feels like a great specials. Mm. Just a quick bit about, for those of us that never got to know Brad, and, and Rico, so we lost Rico recently, didn't we? Give us a little uh, picture of each of those guys. Rico's probably the most um, dedicated musician I'd ever met in my life. Um, and he, um, he sort of brought an, auto, an authenticity to our sound, that, that, that the horn section. He, 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 was, he, was, he was really good. He didn't like mornings too good, um, which was a bit of a strain <laughs> touring sometimes. But, um, but he, he, he was great. He was just, and I remember him saying, Harris, the most powerful sound in the world is the human voice. And I, I've always remembered that, yeah. And it was great to see him on Jules Holland. I mean, Jules Holland looked after him for like 25 years. It was, it was fantastic. And, and Brad was really, really funny. Very, he, he took cynicism to a fine art. Uh, he, and I don't think he realised how good a drummer he was. We did, in 2010, we were playing these European festivals. And as often as not, LCD sound system were on the same bill. And those guys, you'd see them side stage most of those shows and, and I'd sort of go up and talk to them and they were going hey we spent the first four hours just watching that drummer man he's fantastic he's amazing and I went to Brad and I, and I, I told him this and Brad was like oh uh, no, 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 no. you know he, he couldn't take the you know the, 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 the praise which is interesting because he, he did have a very unique style of drumming didn't he it was very there's something I'm not a drummer I don't know what the words are but there's something different about the way he drummed or was it just a scar 
vibe that made it different. Brad was the only one in the band who improvised. He would play different stuff every night. He approached it like a jazz gig almost, you know, the, the accents and, and the stuff that he put in. But he was able to play, to switch seamlessly from playing a, a, a heavy reggae thing into a, into a rock sort of stuff. His, his, he was brought up with, like, you know, with a northern soul and reggae. It's always been dance music for him. Last time I saw you, you did the uh, Apollo November 2014, the support band that I want to talk about, Sleaford Mods. Mm. Can you remember that gig? Oh, they did a tour with you? Yeah, they, they did, they did the, the, the whole tour. I'd, um, I've met somebody at an art gallery in, um, in um, Birmingham, and they were one of, the, one of their, their crew. And um, he, they sent me a, a, a CD, and I was like, absolutely stunned. And um, I... I um, sent this CD off to, to, uh, to the, the guys and the specialists. Look, we have to have these guys touring with us because it, it reminded me of when we were on tour with The Clash in 1978. The other support act was Suicide, you know, these two guys. And, um, and, I, had, and I just had this idea that the Sleaford Mods and the specials would be like Suicide and, and The Clash. And, and in Glasgow, people started off booing them when they came on, but by the end of the set, they, they, they were cheering them. I mean, they, they were just amazing. I, I was in love with the band before I even saw them. The first time I saw them was supporting you at the Apollo. And I've never seen a support band divide a crowd so spectacularly. It was like the people that didn't like it, they didn't just go to the bar or go for a piss. They stood there shouting at the band. How dare you fucking do... You know, how dare you confront us with this, this noise and... That was one half of the audience, the other half absolutely loved it. You know, we were lapping up, we loved it. Us. But I thought, what I loved about it, what I love about them, and what I didn't understand, you know, you, you, a lot of your modern day fans didn't get, was how similar Sleaford Mod's stance now is to what the specials were when they cracked the scene. Exactly, yeah. In terms of the, you know, the social aspect of it and the political aspect mm -hmm. of it and, the, you know, the, the challenging. And it just seemed like a lot of these, you know, middle-aged mods in the crowd with us didn't quite get that you know what I mean but you you obviously got it didn't you yeah I, I was always I always say where are the new specials where are the, where's the new band who's doing what we did back in the day now and um, yeah and I think the sleeve of mods come pretty close John C. Cat, can a strongbow I'm a mess desperately clutching on to a leaf-long depression supplied to me by the NHS is anyone's guess how I got here Anyone's guess how I'll go? I suck on a roll-up, pull your jeans up, fuck off, I'm going home, job seeker. Job seeker. This is the part of the interview that I was really looking forward to, because I'm not sure how many specials fans around the world are aware of the fact that you've got a country and western band. This your little guilty pleasure. I've been, 
I just got really interested in, in the music. I play blues. I've got a little blues band. But I, I, I'd started working with a, a, some people um, playing, playing country a, a couple of years ago. And, I, and it's just one of those things I just got... I just became really interested in the, the politics of it, the history of it, you know, the, the differences between the, the Bakersfield, California stuff and that whole Nashville thing and the politics of Nashville and the Grand Old Opry and just listening to these songs. And, and I, I, I read some really cool books. That's it. When, when I've got a subject, I'll just go into it full tilt. So I've got, I'm starting to build an enormous library of, of books about country and Western. And, um, and, and just like how, how the songs w were written. And it, country and westerns kind of like blues in that it's really easy to play badly. To, 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 to play it properly with, any, with authenticity, it, it really takes quite a bit of, um, I don't know, not sort of chops, but knowing where to put your fingers and when and when to play. And that it's really changed the way I, I play bass to the, to the benefit of it, I, I hope. Yeah, yeah. But it, and it's just, it's just great fun. And some of the, these songs are, are just really, really, you ain't woman enough to take my man and stuff like that. It's just great. They're just so funny. Do the rest of the specials know that you've got this country and western band then, Oris? Quite probably, yeah. yeah. I, will do. I, I don't advertise <laughs> it, you know. But, it, but, but we, I only play locally. You know, it's the same with, with my, my, my blues band. With the blues band, we once went as far north as Burton-on-Trent and as far south as Cheltenham, but we didn't like it. You know, so we, we just play around locally. We're sat here in this gallery. The, the art is beautiful. It's, uh, as I said, it's the art of you and th two of your mates. Your stuff on this exhibition is totally cassette-based. Yes. Where, where did that idea come from? I know you've been doing art for a long time. At what point did you start doodling with a cassette idea that became this total theme that we're about to take to California, hopefully? Pop art. We're back in the 60s and, and Andy Warhol um, got, had a soup can and he did paintings of, of soup cans. It's this like thing, ordinary household consumer thing that you use and then you, and then you throw away. So uh, the sort of, if you like, the, my musical equivalent if you like, was the cassette, here's something, this is this disposable, mass-produced bit of stuff, which you, which, and you put the soundtrack to your life on it, you, you know, you, you know the, the mixtapes that you made, you know, everybody you know, recorded um, Alan Freeman on, um, on a Sunday afternoon, or John Peel, and all that sort of stuff, and, um, you know, with, with Sony Walkmans, you know, you, you liberated you. You could carry your music with you, and it well, that was such as a, an amazing thing. It, it was a revolution, wasn't it, for our, our generation? I think it's nice that it's become um, an high street fashion icon, which it has. But I think people they'll never understand the the feeling of when cassette decks and cassette tapes arrived in our our world. Mm. I mean, mine was like 1970. I think Christmas 1969, actually. And I got a cassette deck and. Um, a cassette tape for Christmas. And I opened the tape first, I didn't realise I was getting a cassette deck until I opened uh, Blue Hawaii, it was, by Elvis Presley. And then I opened this big box, it was a Deca Legato cassette deck, and it was beautiful. It's like I said, that, that, the, the durability of it, the versatility, you could change what was on it, which was unbelievable, wasn't it? You could dump that album and put another one on it. And I used to like, you'd go on holiday and you'd take a little case of like 10 cassettes in it, and that was like 20 albums, you could take 20 albums away with you. Yes, they, they were great. I, I had a, a little cassette player and, and, and a few things. But you didn't have to buy all those records. You, you know, you, you, you could borrow your mates and, 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 you could, and you could put it on tape. So, you know, you, you, it just increased your, your music without having, having to buy it. Or There was this thing, they, the, the industry got a bit, got wise to it and they put this thing up. It wasn't, you know, home taping is killing music, which got changed to home taping is skill in music. <laughs> 
Which, and I thought that, that was quite good. What was that thing? Um, if you say, I don't believe in fairies, um, a, a, every time you say that, a fairy dies, it was the thing with, with punk rockers, every time you taped an album, an A&R man dies. I think which... which which was kind of which kind of worked with that sort of punk aesthetic that was going. You wrote a book as well, which I've not read. Scarred for life. Is it still available at all good bookshops? Yes, absolutely. Waterstones or sometimes a bargain bin classic. I've seen it in the um, in the in the works for three ninety nine. Yeah. Is there any real juicy bits in there? No, no, it's a love letter. I mean, I, I, you know, what is it? Uh, to paraphrase Shakespeare, I have come to, to praise the specials, not to bury. No, I've come to, to bury the specials, not to praise them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did, uh, did Mrs. Panto have to read through it before you released it? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my, my proofreader, yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right, we're going to wrap it up now because it's, uh, listen, that rain again, it's beautiful, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to end on one question. Much like me, you've got several different career things that you do, you've got different arts that you wear. If you had to focus on just one of these jobs that we've talked about, so Oris, the bass player in a country and western band, <laughs> Oris, the art teacher teaching kids with special needs, Oris doing this beautiful art that we're sat with today or in, in one of the UK's most important bands. If you could have just one of them jobs and not have to worry about money, the money's going to be piling in, which one would you happily spend the rest of your days doing? Um. All of them. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I can't. Shit answer. question, isn't it? Yeah. I'm in the same boat, yeah, mate. Yeah. I, I, I can't answer that question because I, I, I can't see myself not playing. There again, I can't see myself not painting. You know, it's it's, it's really difficult. I uh, I have parallel. Am I allowed to have parallel? Yeah. It, it's like desert island discs. Am I allowed to take two you know, things with me to the desert island? You know what? Just take them all, mate. Just keep it all up. What you're doing is beautiful. And uh, Oris Panther, thank you for talking to us, man. Thank you very much. Thank lovely chap Horace Panther of the specials do check his art out when you get time uh, go to his website HorisePantherArt.com and if you're out in California do try and catch up with that exhibition Vinyl versus Cassettes keep an eye on Horace's website for all the information on that that's all for this episode apart from the bit right at the end where I play a track from a new upcoming unsigned band or artist I'm going to leave you with a track from a Manchester band called The G.O.D the press release that came with it reads The G.O.D don't sound like any band you've heard in recent years and at the same time they managed to instantly sound like your new favourite band should and I thought that as soon as I heard it there's shades of the Stooges in there and Boy and T-Rex and Buzzcocks it's a truly great new rock and roll band and they're a bit of a super group actually up in Manchester because the members the three members have all played in some of the city's other great bands uh, the G.O.D. are singer and guitarist Chris Bridget previously of Dubsex and a band called Rude Club uh, Funky Cy Wollstonecroft on drums he's a legend he's played with Ian Brown he's played with The Fall and recently had a great band called Big Unit and on bass and backing vocals uh, Inigo Ford he's a frontman of the brilliant band Nude who you got to hear at the end of episode 6 of my podcast so three piece band the G.O.D I'm going to leave you with a track 
called Drive Away the Rain. Uh, it's a little tribute to the Manchester Rain, which so beautifully and uh, romantically provided a perfect backdrop to this episode's interview with Oris Panther. It was a lovely moment, wasn't it? And this is the G.O.D. with Drive Away the Rain. Thanks for listening. Lots of love to you. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. Life would be like this It doesn't matter